Greetings, church. My name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We will be in verses 22 through 25 today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, first books of the New Testament. You'll get to Acts and then Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. That's where we will be. Or just type in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Uh, before we come to the text, uh, this week and next, we'll be following Paul's uh, thought, flow of thought rather, into a consideration about human nature. And parents, perhaps for some of you, you've not yet spoken with your children about some aspects of God's word and human sexuality. And so you may want to press pause here, have a more robust conversation with them. Um, and if you need help with that, because we all do, help navigating these kinds of ideas through God's word in, in particular, but in the world in general, um, we would love to help. There, there are questions in our family guide this month to, to help foster that conversation, but there's a number of great resources that we would love to offer you as well again this week uh, and next week in Romans 1, uh, 22 through 27 that we'll cover in the next two uh, Sundays. Where we've been recently um, has not only been Paul introducing himself here in Romans and then introducing Christ, but in particular, then in uh, about the middle of chapter one, Paul has clarified the gospel, that he says the gospel is the power of God, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, namely Jesus Christ is the power of God, Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. And then he shifts, as we saw in verse 18, um, up to 21 to, to consider the wrath of God, how the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. So we see the power and the righteousness of Christ then demonstrated in his response to sin. So it's his power, it's his righteousness then that give this natural outworking of his justice, if you will, against sin. And then today we'll consider how this idea comes against, how, how his wrath is upon uh, idolatry in particular, and an idolatry around sexual sin uh, in particular. And so in, in order to do that, we're going to read the text, we're going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we will go from there. So Romans chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurities, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, as always, we need your help. We need your help coming to your word because on our own, we cannot understand nor could we apply and respond rightly in righteousness to your word. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us as we come to this text. We thank you. What a gift that we come to the word of God. This is not a dead text. This is a living word. And so I pray as we read it, would you read us back through your word? Would you expose lies? Would you remove us from the things that bind us up in sin and, and bind us to righteousness, we pray? I pray even now that as your word um, 
through the singing of your word and the reading of your word and the praying through your word during our gathering time. Father, would that have tilled the soil, begun to expose uh, the truth of who you are and expose the, the, the need and the sin that's in our hearts. And so now, God, we come broken and contrite before you, asking that you would sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, make our feet ready for action, that we might be the church you're calling us to be here in the northwest side uh, of the city. So God, glorify yourself. Magnify yourself in our hearts, in our, in our church, in our city, in our world, we pray. Through this text, Father, do your work and your will, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, Paul is going to talk to us today um, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the course of 2,000 years of church history. He's going to talk to us about idols. But the pathway he's going to take to speak to us about idols is the pathway of wisdom. He's going to ground his argument first in this idea of wisdom. Look again at verse 22. Romans 1 verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul is essentially saying there's a kind of wisdom that is a bit like humility, a bit like false humility. Humility being this, this virtue that the moment you boast in being humble, you reveal that you are prideful. And so what Paul is speaking about is a kind of wisdom that the moment you claim to have it, it's revealed how foolish it actually is. And in particular, uh, boasting in wisdom is foolishness. So there, there were those, it seems, in Rome who claimed a wisdom which actually was foolishness. Well, what exactly is Paul getting at here? First, we'll look at it a lens and a broader understanding of wisdom within the Bible, um, and then particularly what, what Paul, what was happening in Paul's first century audience here in Rome. And to help us get a, a biblical understanding of wisdom, we ought to go to the apostle James. James wrote a correspondence about 10 years before Paul wrote Romans, and he's writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the known world, who have been dispersed from their homes, and he's encouraging them in the middle of their suffering and a displacement from home, he's encouraging them by speaking to them about wisdom. In fact, he speaks so much, James speaks so much about wisdom that many call James the Proverbs of the New Testament, Proverbs being one of the three primary texts of Old Testament wisdom literature. And in James chapter 3, James juxtaposes two different kinds of wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 13 and 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, James continues, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there, there's two kinds of wisdom that James speaks about. One is a wisdom uh, from above, and the other is a wisdom will say from below. James says that wisdom from below or, or earthly is unspiritual and even demonic. Conversely, James says that wisdom from above or godly wisdom is pure, merciful, and it makes peace. And in, in his two types of wisdom, James reveals the true nature of godly wisdom, which is actually taught throughout the Bible. 
So let's, let's define wisdom this way. Wisdom is understanding that leads to righteous living. Wisdom is understanding that leads to righteous living. It's not merely an intellectual assent. It's not merely knowledge. It's knowledge that results in godly action. That means wisdom cannot be fully expressed in the mind. It must move wisdom to the hands and the feet. It must take on action. Wisdom is a virtue of action. This reality then led the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, to speak about wisdom uh, with this very joyful personification of this godly woman who is incredibly wealthy in the things of God because of wisdom. Proverbs 3, verse 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are are ways of pleasantness and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. In the the language of James, this is that wisdom from above. This, This spiritual worth and value communicates to us the beauty and blessed nature of this wisdom from above. But in in Proverbs, there's this juxtaposition also of a different kind of wisdom or this earthly wisdom. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It seems right, but it ends in death. So godly wisdom or wisdom from above is precious and it's life-giving. Earthly wisdom is deceptive. This is what we got to take time to consider today. Earthly wisdom is deceptive. So then when the apostle Peter, Peter gives us such great hope, when he exhibits this this deadly wisdom in the face of Jesus, telling Jesus that he does not have to go uh, and die, Jesus responds to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Earthly wisdom is is satanic. It's set on man. Godly wisdom is brilliant and beautiful because it's set on God. Here's one important way that these two wisdoms then work out in our current religious climate and environment. Think about the claim of Jesus. Jesus claims that he is the only way to the Father, or, or if you please, he, he is the way to the good life. He is the way to salvation and to wholeness. Modern or earthly wisdom in response to this worldview or this exclusivity claim of Christ and of the church of Christianity, modern or earthly wisdom suggests that such an idea of moral exclusivity is evil. Instead, they espouse that we should all acknowledge that there is not a single way to salvation or wholeness or the good life. Religious pluralism then tells us to embrace the diversity of spiritual expressions in the world and and see them as equally valid and equally true, even though these ideas are not only competing, but contradictory. What initially then, I mean, this seems so, this seems so wise, this seems so open and egalitarian and gracious, but what, what begins at, at the, at, at the, on the surface to look wise and to seem loving is actually incredibly foolish and demonic because to suggest that we should all agree that all ways of spirituality 
are valid is to espouse a single way to the good life, or, or another way of putting it, in rejecting the idea of one true spirituality, we are offering one true spirituality. That's foolishness. Earthly wisdom is foolishness. Wisdom from above suggests that Jesus is indeed the only way to salvation, wholeness, and the good life. He, he not only makes this claim, Jesus does, but all of the Bible explains that the heavens and earth declare the majesty of our creator God, who is one yet three, Father, Son, and Spirit. From him then we receive all that we need in life and purpose and meaning. What begins then perhaps in this exclusive claim of Christ, this exclusive monotheistic view uh, of, of the world, of who God is, is what begins as, as a constricting and even authoritarian, closed-minded and foolish worldview, soon is seen to be truly glorious, beautiful, and hopeful. Because if Jesus is the only way, truth is not a personally crafted view of personal preferences, but a universal reality which governs the natural world and holds all things together, including our hearts, by the will and word of Christ himself. As Professor Mag uh, Rebecca McLaughlin concludes in her chapter on the exclusivity of Christ in a pluralistic society, on, in her book, Confronting Christianity, she says this, Jesus claims rule over all heaven and earth. He presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as God himself. We may choose to disbelieve him, but, she concludes, he cannot be one truth among many. He has not left us that option. See, Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. People in Rome had been boasting in a type of understanding which at first perhaps seemed wise. It seemed like wisdom. It seemed like good thinking, good living, but it was actually foolishness. What you must know is that earthly wisdom always begins with self. All godly wisdom begins with God. That's why the writer of Proverbs 9 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And when we do not begin with God, we will not end up with him. If we do not begin with God, we will not end up with him. We will end up with the offspring of earthly wisdom, which is idolatry. That's what led theologian R.C. Sproul to say, every idol, if you scratch it, is a mirror. We worship ourselves. That's where Paul is going to take us next. See, in our world, in our day and age, in our current cultural moment, idolatry at first seems wise, and then it kills us. And in our world, God's wisdom at first blush appears to be foolish, but then it saves us. See, the Romans' particular reason for proclaiming to be wise is found in verse 21. So move your eyes up from verse 22 in Romans chapter 1 and look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So their proclamation of wisdom was grounded in this progressive idea that they could know God, but they didn't have to submit to him. They, they, they could have an awareness and understanding of God, but they didn't have to live in light of his 
honor. So this leads to a futility or even vanity in their thinking and in their judgment and understanding and all of their worldview then becomes clouded by sin. They were suppressing the truth of God's uh, sovereignty and his exclusivity and his power. This was the point of verses 18 through 21. This is the type of soil then which gives life to this earthly wisdom. It is a soil of self. It is the ground of personal gratification. It's the mindset of me, myself, and I. Something which plagues all of us. Because I think about myself more than I think about anyone else every single day. We're all guilty of this. Therefore, we need God's supernatural help to loose those bonds of idolatry and of self-consideration that we might no longer be preoccupied with things that are killing us, but we might give ourselves over to that which is truly life. See, as a result of this selfish preoccupation, we, we exchange two things the text is gonna tell us, glory and truth. Remember, at first, this is gonna seem wise. It's gonna seem like a good investment. It's gonna seem like a very good ROI in giving over these, this glory and this truth for something else. But in the end, it will be eternally foolish. Look at verses 23 through 25. Again, claiming to be wise, they became fools in verse 22 and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul speaks about the same action, but in two distinct and different ways. He speaks about idolatry as a whole, but he does so through the exchange of glory and the exchange of truth. We'll, we'll look at, at this idea of, of idolatry through both of these particular ways that Paul describes and considering first how each seems to be wise. Each exchange seems to be wise, but soon enough is revealed to be incredibly foolish. See, in our earthly wisdom, we exchange the glory of God for images of creation, namely mortal man, birds, animals, and what Paul calls creeping things. This, this type of exchange is a part of our shameful history as the people of God. See, glory is the weight of God's worth and the genuineness of his beauty. So Paul is speaking about not just exchanging God for other things, but exchanging what is real, what is actual, what is fundamental and is of substance, and for that which is merely an image or reflection or a fabrication. In other words, the true glory of God for something which he made to simply reflect his glory. Think about that, that juxtaposition, the true glory of God for something that was merely meant to reflect his glory. One of the most infamous examples of all of this of this kind of exchange, uh, took place as Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. He was coming down to greet his brother and the people of God, and he could not have been more surprised at what he found. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving uh, tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Notice the idea of the golden image of creation was grounded in a kind of logic or wisdom. They say that Moses is delayed and we need someone to lead us who will go before us. That's true. Moses was taking longer, apparently, than they expected him to take. I'm not sure that he ever gave them a time frame, but they thought that it should have taken a lot less time to interact with the God of the universe on top of a mountain, giving the moral law to his people. They, they were impatient. They, they, they did need someone also to lead them, um, but that, there's truth in that. However, they, they started with themselves and what they wanted and when they wanted it. He's taking too long. We need someone to lead us. Therefore, we're not going to wait. We're going to do what we want and get what we need now. So what begins is wisdom. What begins is sort of an accurate reflection of what's taking place around them and what they need becomes foolishness. And then all of a sudden, they worship statues that they made themselves and gave those made-up reflections credit or glory for delivering them from Egyptian captivity. They said, this is the God who took us out of Egypt. It starts looking like wisdom, and then it immediately, or very quickly rather, is revealed to be their foolish demise. That's the exchange of glory. And this exchanging of glory is concurrent or one and the same. It happens at the same time with exchanging the truth. See, both happen the moment we make idols. Like what took place on Sinai, we do not simply exchange God's glory for a facsimile of his worth and beauty. We actually worship and serve it. Look again at verse 25 in Romans chapter 1. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So to worship and serve is to order your life around something. It's, it's not just two things. It's giving this full picture of a holistic commitment to someone or something. Think about money, sex, and power, constant idols of our generation and our time. We do not simply glory in these idols. We make plans and organize our lives in order to take hold of them. We make plans to make money. We set up our lives because of our affection and desire for sex. We, we plan out and chart out all of the progress in our life to take hold of as much power as we possibly can. We don't just glory in these things. We order our lives around them. Both are distinct exchanges, one for glory, the other for truth. See, though Israel's infamous demise gives us a really clear picture of what Paul is talking about. Paul is actually not just talking about what happened at Sinai. See, he was speaking about what was taking place in the reader's hearts. He was speaking about what was taking place in the streets of Rome. 
He was speaking to his readers, Jews and Gentiles in the first century. You see, when we look more closely at what Paul says here in Romans chapter one, he's talking about exchanging the incorruptible or the immortal for the corruptible, the created, something we do in every generation, in every context, in every situation, in every city. In James' words, we exchange what is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere for that which is jealous, bitter, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We exchange the glory of heaven for reflections of that glory on earth. We trade God, glory and truth, for an idol, something that first seems really wise, really helpful, really good, but soon is revealed to be utter foolishness. Let's consider this self more deeply for us today, because this is what we must do when we come to the text, when we come to the scriptures, we are not simply asking God, help me to know what this means, what this says, but God, speak by your spirit to me through this word, because the God of the Bible is the God of yesterday, today, and forever, who is a God who is still speaking. This is not just a collection of words that he spoke then, but it's a collection of words that he speaks to us now. Therefore, we must look at our time, we must look at our hearts, and consider, while remaining tethered to the text, how is it that God is speaking to us today. See, Paul has a particular idol in mind. He's not just speaking generally about idolatry. He has a particular idol in mind. Look at Romans 1 verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Paul speaks about lusts and he speaks about impurity. These are consistently used in Pauline literature in the context of sexual sin. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. Each of those has a context and uses the same language that he uses here of sexual sin. So the exchanging of glory and truth has led to a kind of sexual promiscuity, which is out of step with God's desire and design and his intention for humanity. But it is likely brought up here in this particular worshipful context because it is a direct connection to the prostitution practices which were commonly intertwined with false worship practices in that day in Rome. So Paul is speaking directly to a kind of habit, a kind of participation that likely the church may even view as normative, something they may even be drawn to participate in or perhaps not even look at as, as evil or unrighteous or as broken. And so he instructs them in this. He helps them in this. In other words, bringing together the history of idolatry and this immediate context, Paul is explaining that to make sex into an idol is just as much a facsimile of glory and truth as a golden calf. The same is true for us today. Idolatry in all its forms is the exchanging of glory and truth for a deception, for lies, and for facsimiles of glory, reflections of it. Author Thomas Oden wrote, one has a God when an infinite or when a finite value is worshiped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. And isn't it true that our modern view of sex and sexuality at first appears incredibly wise and open, and gracious, and freeing, yet soon it is revealed as utter, utter foolishness. 
Or we could say in the spirit of Odin's words that we soon think that joy can only be found in our sexual expression and experiences. That that, that kind of participation is where our, our heart's going to be made the most glad and we're going to have the most utopian experience here on earth. Let's consider this. Which, by the way, this kind of view of sexuality that we are constantly swimming in in our cultural moment, this is a direct offspring of a pluralistic moment of history that we find ourselves in. A time when the truth has been exchanged for my truth. Am I preaching to you yet? Am I making you uncomfortable yet? Or rather, is God's word beginning to penetrate your heart, your life, your soul, your mind? This This is what he does. He takes from his word, spoken to the church in Rome, and helps us to see how this exchange is still taking place. The truth for my truth. Let's name the idols, which I think there are two primary idols as it relates to sex in our day. Let's name them, then let's think about how at first they seem wise, and then soon they actually are revealed to be foolish. The first idol of sex I'd like to consider and think about is pleasure. Pleasure through sex is found both in physical and in relational or emotional elements of sex. For some of us, our desire for sexual intimacy or sexual experience is a desire to feel endorphins released in our brains and in our bodies or even sensations that would be experienced in our bodies or in our flesh. For others, it's it's more at the level of the heart, though. Sexual pleasure is a kind of belonging and closeness, which we believe cannot be replicated elsewhere. So pursuing These pleasures, though, without regard for God and his word, results from an earthly wisdom which begins with self. And that kind of idea at the level of self is that I can and should do what feels good and what I believe will make me happy. So that's where we begin. The principle is that I can and should do what makes me feel good and what makes me happy. And therefore, these sexual experiences bring me pleasure at the level of my heart or at the level of relationship or at emotions. They feel good. They make me happy. Or I have this physical experience of pleasure. It begins, though, with that principle of self. And that seems incredibly wise. That seems wise to, to, to let the, the longings and impulses of your heart guide you. This is what we are constantly fed as the truth of who I really am inside needs to be let out in the experience of my feelings. So our feelings then become primary, they become central, and that's what is idolatrous. It's when our feelings become primary, they become central, they become the, the thing that I glory in, they become the thing that I order my life around. While this may at first seem permissible and even wise, pleasure was always meant to be complemented by and enjoyed with purpose. Namely, sexual pleasure experienced through the union of marriage was to be a signpost pointing husband and wife to the satisfying eternal pleasure of the Lord and union of Christ and his church, that's actually where real lasting pleasure comes from, from God himself and his union with his people. Sex is merely a reflection of that glory. The second idol uh, of sex is freedom. Freedom through sex is found essentially by avoiding any archaic restrictions of the Bible in particular or religion in general, which limits sexual experience to heterosexual marital covenant. 
right? Anything outside of that seems, seems freeing and liberating. Pursuing freedom without regard for God and his words results then in an earthly wisdom which begins with self, just like pleasure. And this, what's at the center of this, this, this principle is that I can and should do what I want or what I desire, right? It's very, very similar that, I, that, that with pleasure, it's I can and should do what makes me feel good and what makes me happy. But here's more about will, that I should be able to do what I want. And therefore, whatever boundaries or restrictions, religion, the Bible, God, the church, my parents, whoever puts around me, true enjoyment comes from breaking those boundaries, walking outside of those restrictions and truly being free. See, to be sure, we may put some sort of moral guideposts on that, that we shouldn't do what we want as long as it doesn't hinder someone else's freedom or hurt someone else. Nevertheless, in this, freedom then becomes primary. It becomes central. It becomes what I glory in. It becomes what I order my life around and therefore idolatrous. While this may at first seem really enlightened and wise and so open-minded and mature of us as a culture or, or individually, freedom was always supposed to come with context and boundaries. In fact, unbridled freedom actually leads to captivity. This is what author Re Rebecca Pippert was, was getting at in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, when she wrote, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. Hear this, church. We are controlled by the lords of our lives. If freedom becomes your Lord, it will lead to a captivity of whatever thing that you believe that you are supposed to express and experience unhindered, unbound, without limits. See, freedom, though, is not about limitless possibilities and the power to choose. It's about knowing and enjoying who we actually are. As Elton Trueblood put it within the confines of sort of an athletic context, he says that the athlete is not free to perform to their best ability if they are not first bound to the rigors of practice. See, freedom is not about doing as you please. It's about knowing who you are and operating within those boundaries. Therefore, when sex is enjoyed freely within a marital covenant, we are free to be fully known and fully loved. That kind of freedom comes because of the boundaries, not because they have been taken away. That's real freedom. So these, I think, are the two primary idols that show up within the context and conversation around sexual experience, sexual intimacy, and sex in general. And yet there's this other subtle savior, if you will, that lurks within the surface of our sexual sins. One that I'd be remiss if I did not mention here. I've noticed it in the broader conversation around sex, as well as conversations even with you, my brothers and sisters, within our church family around sexual sin. And, and here, here it is. It's, it's simply this, that sometimes we just don't care. We can hear God's voice about the fleetingness of pleasure and the deceptive nature of freedom. But when it comes to sex and those kinds of boundaries and limits and joys that we can find, we just are ambivalent. We're lethargic towards righteousness. We are dispassionate towards holiness. We may say, I know it's wrong. I know it's harmful. I know it's not right, but I just don't care. This too 
actually surfaces as a kind of wisdom in our time. Because for somebody to just say that, well, I just don't care. It's like, thank you for being so honest. Thank you for being so open. Wow, you're so in touch with yourself that you just don't care. That's demonic. To not care about what the God of the Bible says is right and good and healthy for his creation and to be ambivalent, we should weep and cry out, God, change my heart. I just don't care. It, it at first seems very wise, and I want to be so gracious. I realize that many times we get to such a dark place in this. I don't mean to belabor and to judge and to beat down those who have been shamed, but to liberate from that darkness and allow the light to penetrate in deeply that that's not wisdom. That'll hurt you. That is hurting you. This is a kind of earthly wisdom that is incredibly foolish. It's a lie that supposes you ought to feel like following Jesus in order to be obligated to obey him. My, my brothers and sisters, delight is not promised to us before our duty. Delight is not promised before duty, but after. In other words, we are never promised to feel excited about obedience. Hear, hear me. We are never promised that we will be excited and feel warm fuzzies about denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following Jesus. We are never promised that we will feel excited about obedience, but we are always promised that we will be rewarded for it. And so, our ambivalence is a false wisdom as much as pleasure and freedom is as it relates to sexual sin. See, pleasure and freedom with insects and, and in general are not God. They are reflections of ultimate pleasure and freedom we find only in him. Therefore, within God's desire and design for sex, we discover true pleasure and true freedom. We find true pleasure because sex is meant to be enjoyed by a married couple in order to nurture intimacy, security, love, and self-denial. And similarly, we find true freedom within those same boundaries of marital covenant. See, sex for the sake of, of pleasure and freedom in and of itself leads to depression and it's limiting. This is what's taking place in Rome. This is what's taking place in Chicago. Idolatry and foolishness then have consequence. Or within our particular context here in Romans chapter one, God's wrath comes against or is revealed against all unrighteousness, including against the idolatry of sexual pleasure and freedom in and of itself. Paul speaks about those consequences in verse 24. Look at it again with me. Romans chapter one, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is, in fact, incredibly alarming. It should be unnerving to hear these words. God gave them up. What does that mean? Well, before we get to what it means, I think we need to excavate a little bit of our heart and understand a lie that we believe about God and about the nature even of consequence and of sin. See, one lie that we believe about God is this, that if God doesn't want me to do something, then he'll stop me from doing it. If God doesn't want me to do something, then he'll stop me from doing it. Or if 
if something is sinful, then God will take away any allure or any urge or any lust that I have for its pleasure or freedom. So we believe that, that God would, would, would take us away from whatever it is that we might possibly be drawn towards if, if it's sin. And therefore, if it's not sin, we suppose, or if, or if we're not taken away from it, then we're free to enjoy it. We're free to, to do it. So he would take this away or he would change me if this was not, this was not sinful. In other words, that he would uh, conform my will immediately and I would not have to have a kind of, um, wouldn't have to face any kind of temptation. See, but that's not what the Bible says. And we must be so careful to not claim something a way that God ought to be without ever consulting his word. See, in Romans chapter one, Paul is saying in response to the exchange, again, keep your eyes on verse 24 here. In response to the exchange of glory and truth, particularly in licentiousness and, and in idolatry in general, is that God doesn't stop us. Notice that. He gives them what they want. He gives us over to our idols. Paul will say this nearly the exact same phrase three different times in just a handful of verses. In verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, he says, God gave them over. And he does the same thing with Israel as recounted in Acts chapter 7, verse 42. It says, God turned away and gave them over. Hear this, because this is part of this lie. God actually gives consequences. By God's grace, we are protected from eternal consequence because of Christ. And in his his favor and his grace, we often do not feel the full weight of our consequences in this life either. But God still gives consequences. His judgment and wrath is against uh, any form of idolatry and any kind of sin. And ultimately, the way that that consequence comes about is that he gives us over to what we want. It's not often, often it is not some arbitrary, supernatural consequence that he lays over our sin. It is simply the natural outworking of our sin. Writer C.S. Lewis said that there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. In our wisdom, we long for earthly pleasure and freedom and God will give it to us. He will give us our earthly pleasure and earthly freedom. If you want physical and emotional pleasure right here and right now, he'll give it to you. He'll let you have it. It's part of this common grace world that he has created. If you want complete autonomy, unbound by his lordship, it's part of the autonomy that he's written in within your humanity. He'll give it to you. This, my brothers and sisters, I believe is why. I'm going to bring it as clear and as, as carefully home as possible so that we see the outworking of this sin. This is why pornography exists and is thriving, especially as many reports are indicating, especially through this global pandemic. We have been given over to our collective sin as it relates to sex. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal with any kind of porn uh, exposure or addiction. What's the big deal? Some people, uh, with some people like enjoying a few images or a few moments, a few videos, it's, it's normal, especially in this pandemic. It's, it's hard on all of us. It's challenging on all of us. By the way, whenever we sin, God doesn't ask what circumstances surround it. He, he responds to the sin. He comes to our rescue. He comes to our aid, but he directly addresses the sin. He does not excuse it. 
So what if we experience just a little extra pleasure, a little extra freedom, something that may not be that wholesome? It's not a big deal. See, this is our ambivalence showing up in the middle of our pandemic, right? It, it's the way that we, as one uh, preacher put it, we live in close or, or uncomfortable proximity with our sin. We just like it as like a pet, something that we keep around us that we just like to coddle and protect. It's just our little sin on the side, right? It's our little side chick that we just never actually speak about, talk about, but enjoy based on our kind of freedom, our kind of expression. God, forgive us. See, sex was created for the sake of human intimacy and oneness, which would actually magnify and celebrate and mirror the exalted Christ and union with the church. You cannot be one with your computer. You cannot be one with your phone. You cannot be one in isolation by yourself. It is taking the glory of God and exchanging it for a dim reflection. It is taking the truth of God for a lie. And often, especially with porn, I believe that God gives us over to that sin and it's killing us. Pornography in particular then, though it may seem wise to to enjoy and maybe to create a little bit of a distraction or a stress relief, sin is not a stress relief. It always creates more sin or creates more stress. It's not an aid. It's not a help. Pornography rewires the brain. It makes it more difficult to actually engage with real human beings in real space and real time. It makes it more challenging. And, and all, all of research, all of um, any kind of work scientifically in pornography has revealed this, that ultimately it makes practicing empathy, sorrow, patience, and generosity more and more difficult. Why? Because digital sexual experiences are performed on command. It's not mutual. It's selfish. It's artificial. Therefore, as a result, we begin to experience relationships, especially romantic relationships, on our terms. And then we're surprised when we get increasingly frustrated and angry with people who don't fall in line with our relational expectations, which have been birthed out of and informed by an idolatry of sex that has been mediated through a screen. That's the exact opposite of the gospel. Do, Do you see? This exchange is killing us. This exchange is killing you. It may not be pornography. It may not be sexual pleasure and sexual freedom. But this this is what Paul is speaking about here in Romans chapter 1. Idolatry in general does this, but idolatry of sex in particular does this to us. See, earthly wisdom at first seems so wise. Then it's revealed as foolishness. Conversely, godly wisdom often seems foolish and is soon to reveal, revealed to be truly righteous wisdom. See, we've seen how uh, idols appear wise at first, but then are revealed to actually be destructive and, and kill us and harm us and hurt us and are really foolish. But what about God's wisdom? See, well, let's, let's first think about how he gives us over. That at first seems mean, cruel, and certainly foolish, doesn't it? That God would give us over, those whom he loves, those whom he cares for, our heavenly father, our sons and daughters, would give us over to something that would hurt us. Yet, there is something in this giving over which is not merely consequential, but it's redemptive. It's legitimizing us as sons and daughters. Consider Hebrews chapter 12, 
verses 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, to, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What may be at, at, at first blush seems foolish that God would give us over to our sin is incredibly loving and wise. See, through consequence, the Lord disciplines us so that we would be transformed into his likeness. It's what we're trying to teach my children about consequence. That consequence is a small pain or a small loss now that we we hope, we pray, will protect you, glory, Jedediah, Micah, and Levi, from greater pain and, and greater loss in the future. This is a small pain now. We tell them to avoid a big pain later. Every broken pleasure, church, please hear me, my sisters and brother, every broken pleasure, every unsatisfying thrill is meant to draw you back to the one who holds your heart. Every freedom that ends up trapping you and ends in an addiction is meant to call you back to the arms of his grace. Our pleasure and freedom begin like wisdom, but they end in foolishness. God giving us over may at first seem foolish, but his wisdom is ultimately revealed. The truest expression of this tension, of this paradox of wisdom and foolishness, is revealed in the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 18. Turn to the right so that we see it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Just a couple pages to the right. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, rather in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Hear, Hear this a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Church, Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. Jesus himself is the power and righteousness for salvation to all who believe. And yet, Jesus at first seems incredibly foolish. 
doesn't he? He's rejected by religious authorities. He's mocked by those in positions of cultural power. He's too conservative for some. He's too liberal for others. He's seemingly too forgiving towards the likes of prostitutes and tax collectors, and he's seemingly too harsh on the learned and the pious. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, and he's folly to the Greeks. He seems foolish. I imagine when you first met Jesus, he seemed foolish too. He, he wanted you to deny yourself. He called you to stop drinking. The only thing that you ever felt brought you pleasure and help and comfort. He wanted you to start treating women with love and respect, to care about someone more than yourself. He wanted you to start considering his will and his word before your own. He called you to follow him and no one else, to be utterly betrothed to him. He told you you were sinful and broken and helplessly dead sinner and that he loved you and made you for his purposes with more meaning and worth than anything else in all of creation. Jesus at first seems foolish. Like, what is he talking about? And yet, Paul tells us that he is the wisdom of God. Jesus, then, is the fullest expression of understanding lived out in godliness. That's wisdom. This is demonstrated most shockingly on the cross. Earthly wisdom tells us that the cross is the logical place for criminals, for rebels like you and like me, for sinners. Convention tells us that the wages of sin is death. Then, then we all deserve to die. We exchanged glory and truth of God for reflections and lies. We deserve to pay the consequence. That seems like wisdom. That seems accurate. That seems logical. But that's not the fullness of the wisdom that's from above. Thanks be to God. The wisdom from above doesn't even seem wise at first because it is on the cross where the Son of God does the imaginable, where the Son of God, who is the incarnation of the wisdom of God, where the Son of God, who is perfection personified, the Son of God, who is glory and truth, the Son of God exchanges himself for us. When we exchanged God for ourselves, God the Son exchanged himself for us, therefore, glorify him, worship him, serve him, order your life around him, the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, in his infinite wisdom, God gave us over to our sin. But in doing so, he then gives over and gives up his son for us. Paul summarizes this reality beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is true wisdom. May we worship the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to repent of false loves, of false pleasures, of false freedoms, 
Forgive us for the ways we have ordered our lives around things like sex, power, and money. Forgive us that we too, like those in Paul's first audience, like the, the shameful heritage of our faith, that we constantly are exchanging the truth of God for mere reflections of your glory. So forgive us, God. Reorder our hearts and our minds. Wash us clean. Free us of guilt and shame. I pray for those in my, my church family, in our church family, my sisters, my brothers, who right now are even saying to themselves, there's no way I could ever get out of this sin. There's no way I could ever break this habit. There's no way I could ever walk away from this kind of urge, this kind of lust, this kind of pull. Father, we know that your word does not promise that you will take away every feeling or every urge or every temptation, but you promise that you will meet us in the pain. You will meet us in the suffering. That you have exchanged, traded places with us on the cross and put your son there for our sake, that we might have power in this life and power in the age to come by the power of your spirit. And so give us hope in that. Give us joy in that. And may we worship you in that and no other. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.